When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 92nd episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is letting the nothingness into your swing. I'm joined by Martin Wells. He is the author of No One Playing, The Essence of Mindfulness in Golf and in Life. The publisher is Mantra Books. It's an imprint of John Hunt Publishing. Martin has worked as a psychotherapist in the National Health Service for over 30 years, in addition to teaching mindfulness to other patients and staff. He lives in Bristol, England, and at age 70 is still a single-figure handicapped golfer. He's also played senior amateur and semi-professional soccer for nearly 20 years. Welcome to the show, Martin. Thank you. Absolutely. So let's start out with just a brief sense of what's the book about. Well, it's... Uh... It's a, a, a story of a, of a strange meeting between me and um, an, an Asian gentleman that appears on the first tee of my golf course. I'm, uh, I'm supposed to be playing with my brother, but he can't make it because he's ill. So uh, uh, this guy turns up and he, he knows nothing about golf and asks me if he can, um, if he can come round with me. And I'm sort of initially a bit um, unsure about this because I think I'm going to have to explain this rather complex game to him. But as it turns out, he teaches me about the inner game. um, And that's the the whole premise of the book, I guess. Okay, so the the Beatles went to India, but you import India or someone from Asia (laughs) as your companion here. Yes, yes, exactly. Okay, and and the structure of the book, you might want to mention the the eighteen holes and all. Yes, thank you. There's well, there's, there's nineteen chapters, so eighteen holes and the nineteenth hole, and an epilogue, and each each one, I guess, contains um, a lesson about the game and about the inner game. Um, and the first three or four chapters I started thirty years ago, and so it's only it's only been in lockdown in the last couple of years that I finished the last four or five chapters. And looking back, I couldn't really have, have written those any earlier than I did. Okay. And the book is lovingly written, including some uh, delicious descriptions of how the ball uh, dribbles back away from the hole and so forth. Um, having played enough golf to experience those agonies, um, I, I certainly appreciate it. Also lovely descriptions of the, of the golf 
uh, holes, the course itself that you kind of constructed through a potpourri of uh, courses there on the west coast of England and so forth. You want to just briefly describe that as well? Yes, yeah. I, I suppose um, I suppose that's been part of my love for golf is, is, is the, the terrain that we play on and particularly Lynx golf, the seaside courses that are so wild and, and challenging to the golfer but also beautiful to the eye and uh, you know um, yes as you say there's, um, there's quite a few of the courses are, are based in Scotland each each of the 18 chapters is based on a on a hole and there's even a prize at the end of the book if if anyone can guess them all Sure. Uh, and, and they did sound kind of mouthwatering, I must say. The, the descriptions were lovely. And uh, although I'm not an avid golfer, I thought, geez, I really need to grab the clubs and uh, head on out to uh, the western coast of England. <laughs> yeah. so, so in the intro, or actually on the back cover of the book, um, as part of your, your bio intro, it mentions that there was a kind of an epiphany, a pivot moment in your life uh, regarding a, a talk you heard by a French psychiatrist. It seems that that's probably instrumental. I know you have a gentleman from, you know, Asia who's with you in the book, but it seems as if there's an alter ego, this French psychiatrist probably hanging over in some fashion. So I want to give you a chance to elucidate. Well, even, even with the French psychiatrist, there's, there's a, a tradition that goes back to India because his teacher's teacher was Ramana Hamahashi from from India, so so it's in that tradition anyway. But yes, what what happened was I um, about twenty years ago now went to a, a talk at the Royal College of Psychiatrists on meditation, basically mindfulness, and the um, te- the talks in the morning were you know with powerpoints and research figures and statistics and things interesting. But in the afternoon, this French psychiatrist stood up. He didn't have any notes or any PowerPoint or any research statistics. Um, and he just stood up and said, in order to be a psychiatrist, you must completely forget you are a psychiatrist. And then he didn't say anything else for probably two minutes, something like that. And then he said something similar to that uh, uh, two minutes later, like, like almost like ringing a bell. It was more of a meditation than a talk. And, and, um, and of course, that first statement and the implications of that first statement and the way he delivered the course were, was an extraordinary uh, experience for me. And, and one where all the sort of striving and uh, searching for improvement not just on on the sports field, on the golf course, but but in life as a psychotherapist and, and mindfulness teacher, uh, it, it, that all fell away in, in into into just a sort of presence in a way of being alive w- without expectation or without goals, or without direction. Um, and it was a mixture of what he said and the way he said it, and and we've become colleagues and friends since then and, and, and work together. And uh, it's been an amazing liberation for me. Huh, no, that does sound like a, a wonderful uh, delivery that he gave, um, including the way he did it. I, I mean, I've spoken at conferences in what, 35 countries, but one I, one I always remember is actually was very near the White House, a grand old hotel. And the woman delivered the entire speech in a whisper, essentially. And at first I thought, have you lost your voice? And then I realized it was part of 
the the whole message, which was she was trying to go unorthodox but more intimate, and it just was a wonderfully reflective talk. And uh, by the time it was done, I was like, "What a coup de grace! What a wonderful, you know, presentation." So l- let's st- stay with a few things. Then um, we're going to get into golf quite specifically a bit later on. But um, there's a seems to be a pretty important comment you said: "The zone finds you." versus getting into the zone. And if you can you know, say a bit about that, and then maybe you have a couple of other uh, mindful tips uh, that, that follow from that, that sure. statement. Sure, yes. And um, it's, um, it's, a, it's a paradoxical, um, na- the, the paradoxical nature of, of meditation, of meditation practice, and and actually, as you say, we'll come to that where that is in golf and sport as well. But we, we'd love to be able to find the zone. How do I get in the zone, in a sense? And that's 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 often asked. Or how do I how do I meditate to find peace? And and, and there's the paradox that that often comes up in meditation and in these teachings is that we are peace so there's there's no way to peace peace is what we are so in that sense we can't find it the only thing we can do is allow ourselves to be find found by it in a sense reminded of our of our true home I, I I like that. I, it makes me think of a a different moment in in college where the uh, student was trying to brown nose the professor. We were discussing William Faulkner, and he says to the teacher, with no understanding obviously of the concept, he says, "Does Faulkner have any advice on how we can get free will?" Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yes, exactly. In in Chinese, it's called Wei Wu Wei. It's the it's the practice of no practice. So uh, there's an obvious paradox in that. It's absurd yes. to, to the Western mind, to the binary mind. It's absurd. But, but actually, there's a deep truth in it. Because as soon as you're trying, um, and, and an example again from Jean-Marc, uh, w- w- sometimes he will say, intention is intention. So if we have that intention, then it, it, it automatically brings a tenseness into the body and into the mind. And, of course, that's not the zone. So you automatically step out of the zone with that that tenseness in the body. Well, the the zone is a lovely thing when you can get there. I can remember, you know, all the best shots I've ever made in any sport uh, have all just happened, even one day where I think I made, honestly, about 16 of 18 shots in basketball, including one from half court. At the end of the game, I mean, it's just someone came over to me at the end and he put his finger against me and went Zzz, like I, w- I was on fire. <laughs> A beautiful and, thing. And the challenge is, of course, you can't manufacture that much, no. as, much as you'd like to. And, and, and it's, in a sense, it's the essence of non-duality. We, 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 can't, we can't sort of get there because we are there. We can only we can only know what we're not. So we can we can observe the workings of the mind and the tensions in in the body, so so that we as we observe them they fall away, and then of course, then the zone is more more available to us. 
Sure. Now, you mentioned the word absurdity a bit ago, and uh, one of the statements that uh, struck my attention in the book was you said, much of golf is absurd. Yes. Um, can you can you say more, please? <laughs> well, um, I'd, I'd probably have to ask my wife for, to answer that because... <laughs> she, she thinks it's definitely absurd. Yeah, okay. definitely absurd. What the hell are you doing? Um and uh, and uh, it sort of relates to the previous thing we t- we were talking about in a way because there is an absurdity in in us in us trying in in thinking that we can control something. I, I always I always laugh when a sportsman come sportsman or sportswoman comes onto the the uh, interview afterwards and says, uh, "Yeah, I, I I felt in control. I was in control." And, and I'm, I'm always thinking to myself, no, no, you weren't. That's, that's an illusion. And that's part of the absurdity of the game that we might imagine we're in, in control and we might imagine that egos finally worked it out so that, so that we've, we're on top of this. But any golfer knows that as soon as you start to uh, feel that egoic pride or, or sense of control then there's hubris you're going to fall flat on your face you're going to knock it in the lake or or hit an air shot or something um, sure. and, and and that's the game and that's the the beauty of the game it's a great teacher in itself yeah well the, the biggest lies in life of course are the ones we tell ourselves <laughs> yes. um you know and, and we're both uh, former midfielders in, in soccer what you would call football of course and uh I think that was probably the sport I played best, and in part because I didn't have time to think. I was just in the flow. As a center midfielder, I thought of myself as a hawk just circling, and uh, the ball was the prey, and uh, my goal was to seize it as often as possible on behalf of myself and my team. Um, and it was that circling motion and just staying in, in, you know, in motion. You know, the first principle of physics, I believe, is a body in motion tends to stay in motion. And I tried to live, live that principle as best I could. Um, so there was another comment, just to take this a bit deeper, because obviously, you know, you do work in, you know, psychology. And uh, you also say those of us with deeper wounds to our self-esteem feel these poor shots in golf our confirmation of what we knew already. So, I mean, this is, you know, this is not a light book. It really does have significance to it. And it does go to the inner game of golf and which takes us to the inner being of the person playing golf. So can you say a bit about that, that particular comment, which got my attention? Yes. Um, It's, um, it's a really important part part of the book, I think, and and I I, sp- I suppose in a way, the the book's a memoir. So, uh, I know for me that that sport has, uh, in transaction uh, transactional analysis, we call it counter script. So, it, 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 being good at sport, being sort of uh, admired by colleagues, or or or. Uh, you know, as you say, on a soccer pitch, being part of something that that's successful or, or, or works well has been an amazing sort of balm to uh, a, a much younger part of me that that was very lacking in confidence, very shy, very afraid of people, and very sort of doubting of my um, not my not my. Uh, a capacity to be loved because my parents were very loving and very supportive, uh, 
but but to really make an influence or or, or to have a voice. Um, and I would I would right into my twenties and thirties. I I would never say anything in a group, uh, or or only if I'd heard everyone else in the group speak. So I knew I was sort of safe. And there's a there's a there's a there's an ethnic background to that in the sense that my mother's German and I grew up in the 1950s in the UK. And, of course, being German in this country at that time would have been, I mean, my mother's never really spoken about it, but it would have been really, really difficult time for her. And so I learned to hide that part of me, which would have also felt to me, uh, and I know it did, um, as a as a bad part of me, something something to be ashamed of, to be guilty about. Uh, well, I, I do know from the nineteen sixty six World Cup, uh, wasn't the uh, English crowd chanting to the Germans, "We won the war"? Something something very much like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and you can imagine me in the playground, age seven or eight or something. You know, being on the side of the the, the English army, not 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 saying yeah. that I'm German. <laughs> yes. So I learned uh, to hide that. You know, I learned to hide that and cover it really. So so sport became a, a great opportunity to do that. Huh. Well, I can certainly relate in that my family moved to Italy for two years when I was a boy. My father worked for the 3M company. I didn't know language at first, but I found myself in an Italian first grade in a fishing village, uh, and I could only do the math unit. And honestly, it took me until graduate school before I, t- I spoke in class. Uh, I got to Brown University. I said, I have to finally break through here. I have to talk in class. I very nearly didn't. I remember we finished the first, we were discussing a poem by uh, the British poet Andrew Marvell. And I hadn't said a word. I knew the poem intimately. I studied at Oxford. And finally, I said, I don't think we've really discussed the poem. And uh, the teacher said, what are you talking about? And then I had to defend myself. So then I had to explain. So I finally, I finally did talk indeed. But, but, but staying with that, because, you, you mean, the book is autobiographical to a degree. And you mentioned your relationship with your father. And you, you had different politics, it sounded like, and quite possibly a different sensibility when it's all said and done. And you mentioned something that got my attention again, which is that you said men often have a hard time really being intimate with others. And my, my mom would even take that comment and say, this is a real typical conversation between guys. This is as close as they get often. Uh, I will meet you at the, I will meet you at the green. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So, so what, why is it that men seem to have this, uh, this uh, being afraid of true intimacy. Of course, they're, they're sometimes afraid of being afraid itself. Yes, no, no, absolutely. Um, I mean, it, it's strongly cultural, isn't it? We can see it, we can see it changing now. And, and if we stay in the, in the cults, culture of sport, for example, there's a lot, lot, certainly in the UK and I think in the States as well, there's a lot more sports people Talking about their vulnerabilities, about their depression or their anxiety, yes. um, and certainly in, in our era when we were when we were playing sport and, and when we were young, that sort of thing did not happen. Um, uh, and and of course, the message to us as young men would have would have been, yeah, don't don't show your feelings, don't don't have your feelings, uh, certainly don't express them. So, so there, there is a there is a cultural shift, um, and and it was a very powerful uh, 
the cultural uh, influence when I was growing up. And I went to an all-boys school. Um, most of the staff were male as well. So it, w- it was an extraordinary sort of hypnosis in, into, into how to be, which, which left out a whole range of possibilities in terms of feelings, um, tenderness, intimacy, grief, um, which, of course, in a way, drew me into psychotherapy, where, where um, I, I learned a huge amount from my own therapy and my own group therapy and supervision. Um, you know, it was a great gift to me in, in that sense. Sure. No, I think, you know, I've read George Orwell's uh, writings about going to boarding school and the, the amount of tenderness allowed <laughs> and, and showed uh, it was minuscule. Um, but but now we have Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka and others who, you know, women, obviously, in both those cases, but, you know, leading the charge to bring these things in. But they're not the only ones, but uh, certainly there is that movement. So we have about 10 minutes left. I want to move to the game of golf itself, specifically, if we if we might for a bit. So we, we've just been discussing fear. So I, I can't resist going to the most infamous meltdown on a golf course ever that I know of. With, which is uh, Van de Velde's 1999 Open Championship. As a, as a trained eye and as a psychotherapist, I imagine you've watched the video. You probably even watched it live as it was unfolding. And maybe you want to choose something else. So there's other meltdowns. But, boy, I'd be interested from your on your perspective. Yes, yeah. I mean, first, I did watch it live. And, and of course, any golfer or most golfers would find that excruciating just just to watch the, the meltdown and the unfolding and um and it, it is about golf but it but it, of course also as, as a psychotherapist and a mindfulness teacher it's it's the power of the human mind and um and the the human mind has an enormous capacity both both for creativity and and, and development but, but also for undermining itself, um, and um, and that that process that we watch when when Van der Velde uh, just went into meltdown like that is 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 the mind at its worst in a sense un, unraveling and and completely um, leaving uh, the the person in doubt, but the body. Sort of sh- shaking with with a, the lack of confidence, and, and so that all the things he's learned suddenly suddenly disappear. And, and did he ever recover? Did he ever win any major championships? I don't, I don't know that he did. I don't think he won a major. I I think he might have played in some tournaments and done okay. Because you know, Yana Novotna, the the Czech tennis player, you know, had a famous meltdown at Wimbledon, but she came back and won it later, and she was a really a dear dear person i was so happy for her yeah it's great when people come back from that isn't it it's wonderful to see yeah but it's the power of the mind and and i just a quick example i i i was doing a mindfulness group in our health service here and this woman a scottish woman had been um she'd had psychotic depression depression and anxiety for 20 years or so and she'd been in a colleague's group a mindfulness group and i said to her what what helped you? Well, you know, what did you learn? And she said, "Oh, that's easy. I know I'm not my thoughts. I now know I'm not my thoughts." 
And this was absolutely liberating to her because, of course, you know, her thoughts had been, uh, you know, as a depressive person, failure. You're useless. You're, you're a waste of space. And for her to realize that she's not her thoughts, um, absolutely liberating. And the key to the book, in a sense, and, and of course, the, the problem with the meltdowns is, is we absolutely identify with the thoughts and they're, and, and they, they're influencing us. So we're, we're not sitting back and thinking, whoa, I'm having a, a thought of putting it in that, in that river off the tea here. And that and that's that's where the source of the meltdown comes. Sure, or or the totalizing. You know, I, I missed that shot, and I'm a failure in life. Period. Exactly. You know, yeah. Exactly. Uh, well, it links you know, the, to your previous question. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, the book has very early on, of course, that delicious quote from Bobby Jones: "The length of a golf course is five and a half inches, the space between your ears." Uh, that's that's as good as that's as good as they come. <laughs> it's so clear, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So I've got to, I've got to ask you something. This will be a, 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 I suppose a tough question, but it's, it's a multi, it's a multiple guess question. So I happen to be a facial coder. That's my practice um, in psychology. So I, I read expressions from the face. It goes back to uh, Da Vinci and Charles Darwin. The one time I was invited uh, by the women's golf coach at Arizona state, which is a perennial powerhouse in America for collegiate uh, sports, particularly golf often. And she arranged for, I think it was three, maybe four uh, serious amateur golfers, ones who entered you know, tournaments, paid fees, uh, performed reasonably well. We all just met on the green and I spent the morning essentially crouched down reading their face faces as they, as they made a variety of, of putts. And then of course we could naturally see how they performed. So here, here are your seven choices because I'm going to be asking you which expression or which emotion expressed on their faces proved the most helpful and the most detrimental to being an effective putter. So the choices would be happiness, surprise, fear, anger, sadness, disgust, and contempt. Of those seven, which one do you think actually was most conducive to putting well, and which, at least from our little mini experiment, seemed to be the the most uh, harmful? I, I I would I would veer between uh, copping out here, aren't I? Between surprise and happiness, and um, and and anger would would and anger and fear would be would be the at the other end of the scale. Okay, and. Ours was a limited sample, so uh, I, I will not defend this in a court of law, but but I will tell you that actually from our little experiment, anger, slight anger only, but slight anger as in concentration almost was actually the most effective. And that and that does correlate to some other work I did, which was was paid work, which was for the U.S. Olympic diving team before they competed in Rio. And, and as I watched the interactions between the coach and the diver high on the platform, they had a little routine, at least most of them did, where they would exchange a, a knowing smile between them, I suppose, to reaffirm their connection and a boost of confidence. I actually found it was detrimental to their diving, and the divers who instead showed that kind of purposeful, concentrated anger did the best, and they shifted their routine. They dropped that uh, before they headed to the Olympics. Um, so that's what I found, and the least effective, contempt. 
the smirk, the the knowing smirk that I, I'm above, I'm above you. This I, I of course will make the putt. The, the, I think almost the supposition that I'm in control because, you, yeah, because you're actually not in control. Um, anyway, the, the the person was so intrigued. She she just wasn't willing to pay my fare, so I didn't take the offer. But uh, there was a conference on golf analytics with the event being held at St. Andrews in Scotland. And I was invited to speak to show my results. But, uh, you know, since that wasn't really my my calling in life and I was going to pay the fare and I've been to Scotland before I, I passed. But I, I sometimes regret it, actually, because uh, I've not been on the course. And of course, it's very historic and wonderful and extremely daunting and all those things. So a couple other questions in golf here. We're, we're, we're near the end. So in tennis, it's often said that the seventh game of the set is really a crucial game because then you're up 4-3 and you're just nosing that much better to closing out the set on your behalf. In golf, given the structure of your book in 18 holes, is there a point? I mean, because obviously in tennis, you'd say, well, you know, it's add in or add out or, you know, in the tiebreaker. But, you know, that seventh game can loom large, people believe. In golf, is there a hole, you know, out of the 18 holes, is there a hole that's kind of in some subtle way might be the harbinger of how this thing's going to go? I, I think, I don't think, I don't think I generalize. I think, I think there's, um, there's probably different holes that, that symbolize different things. Like in, in, in the book, I, I sort of comment on the first hole and how people set off on the first hole and maybe they hit two bad shots and then they they define their whole round because of those two bad shots. Oh, it's not going to be my day or, sure. or how unlucky or whatever. So, so often the first hole, I think, can can uh, be significant and then of course in in golf and particularly in links golf you've got the ninth which is the turn so in in links golf you're normally playing along the coast one way and then back along the coast the other way so it literally is a turn so uh so it's a significant sort of halfway stage but also a psychological stage so like you know, will I either will I hold it together, or or will will my fortunes change, and, and will will the zone find me in the next nine? Okay, well, you know, as I said I, I have no talents in golf, uh, but uh, when I have played, I, I've found for myself about the twelfth hole really becomes the moment I have to dig deeper because now I've encountered enough frustrations. Uh, that uh, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna salvage anything, I, I have to dig dig a bit deeper and find some you know some whatever some inner tranquility that allows me to go on, uh, because there's usually not in my case been a lot of uh, positive signs. <laughs> yeah, well, it can it can catch you as well. I mean, ego is a big factor in this because because it, it can catch you like you, you can be playing well and there again is that thing i'm i'm playing well so the the theme of the book is 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 no one playing of course so it, as soon as yeah. we go i'm playing well then then there's there's a potential for trouble sure so speaking of highs and lows and trouble uh, i i can't leave this interview without asking you about tiger woods that'll be my last question and any observations if if tiger was your patient what would you what would you say to him? <laughs> well, teach me how to swing, probably. Um, 
uh, that's been a whole fascinating process, hasn't it? What, what a well, I mean, what an astounding golfer, and 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 again, sort of classic, classically, um, we've got we've got hubris, you know. So we've got we've got the fall from grace, yes, um, uh, which which is just extraordinary to to watch in in any sport or in any situation, really. Um, and and what I would say is that he, he he's come back from that, um, and, and it looks like it's it's in, impacted him deeply, um, and and in a sense, that's the design of our fall from grace is is to realise our humility and still keep the qualities that that, that we have in life or in golf or, or, or whatever. And I think he's done a, a great job with that. But it's extraordinary watching people um, come to earth uh, in that way, and, and then watching how they how they um, survive it, how they come through it. And he's done yeah. he's done well. He's done well with that. What an amazing sure. journey! Yeah, no, no. You, you you know you can read the Greek you know heroic tragedies, or you can look at Tiger Woods' life. But uh, it, it, is, it is it has been an epic journey. That that's absolutely true. So we we've reached the end of our particular journey, Martin. Um, so this uh, that, I do want to thank you for being my guest on Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. This has been episode number ninety two, letting the nothingness into your swing. My guest Martin Wells. He's the author of. Indeed, no one playing the essence of mindfulness in golf and in life. If you enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. You can find other episodes by going to my company's website at the obligatory three W's and sensorylogic.com or go to the New Books Network website and search by typing in the show's name. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an epigram. In this case, I took one actually from a Buddhist nun I know nothing else about uh, the person's name, Pima Shadron. Uh, this person said, nothing ever goes away until it has taught us what we need to know. I found that intriguing. Until next time, take care and be well. 